Good morning, everyone. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Peter? 1 Peter. I know we've been in a series of messages in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Just wanted to take a little detour this morning and go into uh, the book of 1 Peter. It's good to pray uh, for those that are hurting, and as I'm sitting there listening uh, to Pastor Tim praying, I'm praying for believers that are, and and non-believers that are going through suffering and going through trials. Uh, This morning, I I entitled this message, uh, Joy and Hope in the Midst of Fiery Trials. Um, How can we have an inexpressible hope? How can we have an inexpressible joy as you go through those difficult trials in your life? Um, You're going through them now, I'm sure. Uh, There are different trials that you're going through. If I gave you this microphone, we could sit here hour after hour just talking about the difficulties that you're going through. And I I pray that this message that Peter gave these group of Christians 2,000 years ago would be a comfort to you as we go through the trials today. It says in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that though it is tested by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So um, some of you know that I uh, work as a uh, counselor, um, and uh, I deal with a lot of people that are going through trials and and troubles. Um, One of my clients this week said, I don't know how you do the work you do because you sit there and listen to people hour after hour, all of the problems that they go through. And they said, you're kind of like a first responder, James. because I guess you go to a struggle and you're there on the front lines. And I said, I'm not like a first responder. I mean, those guys and women that go into, into the battle and go headlong into the battle, um, they're different. They're a different type of breed. The type of person that goes up into a burning building, the person that goes towards that fire, uh, that's different. But then it got me thinking about the fact that I hope I can be a first responder. And I hope that this church can be a church of first responders. Um, People that are there on the front lines. People that are there who are moved towards the problem, not away from it. People that are poised. People that manage stress. People that push aside their fears to help other people. People that are caring and compassionate. People that put other people first. That is... If this church can be known for anything, I pray that it be known that we are a church of first responders. 
people that are there to minister to people in the deepest and darkest times. Well, that's what Peter is doing here. He is saying that he wants us and this body of believers to be people that understand that when we go through sufferings and trials, there's a reason for it. So this morning, I'd like to just hit simply four points. This morning, I'd like to talk about praise in the midst of our suffering. I want to talk about some principles that we need to hear regarding suffering. I want to talk about what God wants to produce out of your suffering. And then finally, I want to talk about a passion for Christ in the midst of our suffering. Well, let's start with the praise aspect. It's pretty clear here. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter just starts off with this aspect of praise. Uh, we had some wonderful time of musical worship and praise. We had an opportunity to just give a little bit long before where we praise God and worship God in our offering. We'll have an opportunity through the word to praise God and worship God. We'll have an opportunity as we go to the communion table to worship God. In fact, we worship God not just in music. We worship God in everything that we do. And we should worship God in everything that we do and all that we say and do. And that's what Peter is saying, that out of our very heart should come this blessing for God. And it's very clear what he says, why we should praise God. It's, it's right here. It's not complicated. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first reason why we praise God is why? Because of his great mercy. Great mercy. See, first responders are people that are merciful people. They go on a ministry of mercy because they know that people are in need and they go out to reach those people and to help those people in need. Well, that's what God did for us and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He went on this great mercy mission for us. He left heaven and came here to earth on a mercy mission to redeem people, to bring them out of death, to bring them out of sin, to bring them out of suffering and into a relationship with him, out of separation and into adoption with him. He is on a ministry of mercy, and that's what he's calling you and me to do every single day of our lives. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. That's one of the first reasons why we worship him. But the second reason he says here is because he has caused us to be born again. You know, many people focus on the fact, and I don't want to get into a big theological issue over it, but many people focus on the fact that we're making a choice in our salvation. God, for some reason, I don't know why, before this world was ever created, ordained that every single one of you be sitting in this room today. He ordained that you be today. <laughs> and he brought you into faith today. It's not by mistake that it happened. He had a marvelous plan to cause your salvation. Yes, I accept him. Yes, I pray to him. Yes, I turn my life over to him. But he is the beginning principle of your salvation. And therefore, he should receive all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Jesus Christ needs to be praised and God, needs, God the Father needs to be praised because he is the great merciful one. He is praised because he has caused us to be born again, but he's praised because he has chosen to bring Christ from the dead. The amazing thing about Christ is that Christ, and we'll talk more about this a little bit later, but Christ bore your sin on his own life. And, and God, wanting to show that Christ has done nothing wrong, raised him from the dead. He was victorious coming from the grave to prove to you that Christ is sinless. Christ is magnificent. 
Christ is marvelous. And God was the one that raised him from the dead. Paul, Paul said this, that if, if Christ was not raised from the dead, we have no salvation. Christ died on a cross for you, but God raised him for the dead to vindicate Christ's name. Praise be to God. Praise be to God because he not only has great mercy and has caused us to be born again and he raised Christ from the dead, but praise be to God because he's granted us an inheritance. It's right here and to an inheritance that is un imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Some of us will have family members that will die and some of us will receive an inheritance from them. And that inheritance may help us for a period of time, but that amount of money or that possession will fade. The bank account will go down or the land or the home will start to demolish. And eventually that inheritance will break down because it's an inheritance here on this earth. But God, what God has promised you and me, if you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, is that he has given you an inheritance that won't ever fade, won't ever be defiled, won't ever break down. We focus our attention so much so on finding security in this world, and God wants to offer you security that is lasting. Praise be to God. But praise be to God also, and Peter says here, because he has kept that inheritance where? In heaven. See, what, what God promises is oftentimes with the suffering and the trials that we go through is that we look here on this earth and we say that, you know what? This moment right now is so very difficult. It's so very painful. But what God is looking for you to see is that ahead of you, down the road, and that may be a minute from now or that may be 50 years from now, we are going to take our last breath and then we're going to receive our full inheritance when we see him. When we see his son and when we see his, uh, the Savior and when we're filled by the Spirit at that time, what he does is he proves to us that you're my own, you're my child. You're part of my family. And all Peter could say is what? Blessed be God. Praise God. Worship God. So, so Peter, in the midst of the trial that we go through, in the midst of the pain that we go through, he says that we need to be praising God. But there's a second thing that I think Peter tells us. He tells us that there's some specific principles that you need to understand in the midst of the trials that you go through. Principles that you need to understand in the midst of the suffering. I find them in verses 6 and 7 here. It says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, let's start there. There are certain principles I want you to know, just bullet point principles that I, I, we all need to know when we talk about suffering. The first thing we need to know is this, that suffering is passing. Suffering is passing. It says, in this you rejoice, but then the line right here, it says what? Though now for a little while. Now, I don't know if your suffering is going to last five minutes. I don't know if your suffering is going to last five days, five years, 50 years, 100 years. I don't know when it will. Oftentimes, suffering is, is short. But even if suffering goes on for our whole lives, what Peter's trying to tell us is this. You're only going to suffer for a little while. Your life is not 91 years on this earth or 150 years on this earth. Your life is forever. And that when we take our last breath from here, what Peter is saying is, is that there is going to be an eventuality where all suffering is going to be gone. All the pain, all the turmoil, all the hurt, all the fears, 
all the sin, all the death passes away. And if I can keep that perspective as the, in the midst of the trial, if I could keep that perspective in the midst of the suffering, that my suffering is only for a little while, that can give me great encouragement to deal with the struggles that I have. But Peter gives me a second principle and gives us a second principle. He says, not only is it for a little while, but right after that, in the English Standard Version, there are just two words. It says, if necessary. My suffering is purposeful. Your suffering is purposeful. You know, I think one of the hardest things that people have is, and to deal with is the fact that they oftentimes feel like there is no purpose behind the suffering. There's no reason for it. There's no rationality for it. And I don't know why, but there's a divine design God has ordained for a certain amount of suffering to be in this world. I don't know why. I do know some aspects of why he tells me in Scripture why he allows it, but he says that there is a necessary component to the suffering that I go through. There's a necessary component to the suffering that you go through. I want you to think about anything good in this earth that you've ever received. Every person in this room was born through a mom's womb. And I have never had the privilege of giving birth, but trust me, I'm sure that it was extremely painful. So every blessing that sits in this room is born out of pain. Every person that has ever received a degree in this room has gone through aspects of pain. Every work that you've ever done has been through the aspect of pain. And what God says is that there is a necessary component to the struggles that we go through. That God allows this painful trial, this grievous trial to go through it because he has a purpose behind it. Every mom would say that they would go through that pain again because they've gotten the beautiful child in the end. Every person who received a degree or got a job would say that, you know what, I would go through it again because I've gotten something on the end. And what God is saying to you is that this is not purposeless, this is purposeful. I am allowing you to go through this trial, but there's a reason for it. And he says that it is necessary. We'll talk a little bit in a little bit about what the necessity is and what he wants to do through the trial. But I need you to realize this, that your suffering is purposeful and your suffering is passing. But the third thing I want you to understand is that your suffering is plentiful. It says that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You know what I really appreciate about Peter and Paul did the same thing is that when they talk about trials, they don't ever tell us specifically the trial that they're going through. You remember in 2 Corinthians when Paul talked about the fact that your grace is sufficient for me? Just prior to that, you remember what he was doing? What was he praying for? He's praying that the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan would be removed. Now, why didn't he tell us what that thorn in the flesh was? Because he wants that message of hope to go to every single person. Now, if he told me that the me his thorn in the flesh was medical and you don't have a medical issue, you'd probably say, I don't need that passage. If he said that the thorn in the flesh was personal and relational and you don't have relationship difficulties, which is probably a joke, <laughs> you probably say it's not a big deal. But he says that the trials that we go through are various, plenteous that there are different types of trials, different types of shading of the trials that we go through. And the gospel message and the message of hope is for every single person that are going through those various trials. Every single person is going through that suffering. 
the message of hope is there for you. Peter tells us that our suffering is passing. Peter tells us that our suffering is purposeful. But Peter tells us our suffering is plentiful. And finally, Peter tells us, going back to the beginning of verse 6, our suffering can prompt joy. Our suffering can prompt joy. He says, in this you rejoice. Now here is the thing that the world doesn't have. In this you can rejoice. See, People have joy at the graduation day. Pastor Tim was just talking about someone's graduation. Graduation day, when you're walking across the aisle and you get your diploma or your degree, there's great joy because it's over, right? The mom could have great joy because the birth is over. But what Peter is saying is this. It's not just about joy after the trial. He is saying that we can have joy in the trial. How? How is that possible? We'll get to that in a moment. Look with me in verse 7. Because I think that what Peter is going to tell us is that there is a product that he wants to produce through the suffering we go through. You see this little word? It says in verse six, I mean, verse 7, it says, so that, so that. Your version may say, in order that, or the, in the result of. What what. Peter is getting at is that connecting to the suffering that you've just talked about, that he's just talked about, and the reason why God is allowing that suffering is going to produce something. Well, what is it going to produce? It says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Um, my accountability partner, I, Joe, and Amy, my wife, have been trying to memorize this um, section in First uh, Peter and uh, I was just meeting with him yesterday, and we were talking about this tested genuineness of your faith. That God takes you through the difficult trials that you go through. Why? Because he wants to prove that your faith is real. He wants to prove that he has never left you. He is never going to forsake you. You're in the palm of my hand. No one is going to ever snatch you out of it. I don't care what the trials are. I don't care what the suffering is. It is passing. There's a purpose behind it. It's painful. It's plenteous. But there is a reason that you can have joy because your faith is secure. It's a tested genuineness of your faith. It says the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. I keep hearing these commercials, you know, as our stock market goes up and down and people worry about money. I keep hearing these commercials about gold, right? That's what you need to buy today, right? Gold. And what Peter is saying is this, your faith is more precious than gold, which perishes. And then he has this phrase, which is interesting to me. He says, tested by what? Fire. Fire. Fire is an interesting thing because fire does two things. Fire separates and it also sanctifies, purifies. Um, I'm not a great metal, I'm not a metal worker, but what I, what I believe occurs when you have a metal is that if you have that metal under normal conditions, the impurities in that metal and the pure things in that metal stay together, rock solid. But then when you put that metal into a fire, what begins to happen is that that fire starts to produce a level of separation. The gold or the silver is now put into the fire, and now what happens is that the impurities start to rise to the surface. And then what the 
goldsmith or the silversmith will do is to skim off the impurities. I heard a story once of a silversmith, and he was asked, how do you know that your silver is becoming pure? And he said that more and more as I skim off the impurities, I start to look for what? My reflection. And when I could start to see my reflection more and more, then I know that it is becoming purer and purer. And that got me thinking about exactly what God does for, for you and for me. As we go through the fiery trials, as we go through the suffering in our life, the fire, the difficulties, that there's a purpose behind it. He wants us to separate out the impurities, and he wants to sanctify you. Sanctify means, going back to that word holy, it means to be set apart. It means to be becoming pure. That God wants to see his reflection, his son's reflection more and more in your life as you go through the trials. There's a purpose behind these trials. There's a purpose. Peter uses the same illustration. Hold your finger there and jump with me to chapter 4. Because Peter uses the same type of illustration in chapter 4, verses 12 and following. It's a passage that a number of you are very familiar with. He says this in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you see her in the sufferings of Christ that you may rejoice and be glad when its glory is revealed. Do you see it? That's exactly what Peter is getting at in chapter 1. He is saying that through the trials that there's a purpose. And the purpose is that God wants to see his reflection more and more in your life as he is separating out the impurities. And as he's making you more and more like his son, you're seeing more and more like that. And the ultimate first responder will start to happen in your life because you're going to start to love others and love God more than you love yourself. Well, Peter told us that there needs to be praise for God in the midst of our suffering. Peter told us that there is a reason and principles for our suffering. Peter told us that there's a product that comes out of it, that your faith is proven genuine. But the fourth thing I want you to consider from this passage, back to chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9, there should be a passion that comes from this. Remember, he keeps talking about this joy and he keeps talking about this hope. But how do I have hope in the midst of my suffering? I have hope in the midst of my suffering because I find it here in verse 8. Though you have not seen who? Him. And who's the him he's talking about? We see it just right at the end of verse um, 7, Jesus Christ. There's not a person in this room that has ever seen the Lord Jesus Christ physically. Um. If you remember, John, no, it was, oh, I just lost it. Thomas, there we go, Thomas. You remember Thomas? And Thomas sat there and it's like, um, Jesus says, you believe me because you see the wounds in my hand and you see the wounds in my side, but blessed be those people that are going to never see me but still believe. Well, that's you and that's me. We sit here today, you have not seen him, yet you what? Love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that isn't inexpressible. Well, I think that a passion for Christ, we just sang it before, what was it? One pure and holy passion. Um, that pure and holy passion comes from first, we need to treasure Christ above anything else. I don't think it's by mistake that Peter uses the idea of silver and gold because he's talking about the things that are here on this earth. 
Sometimes we treasure our relationships. Sometimes we treasure our possessions. Sometimes we treasure uh, prestige or power. And what Christ, what God wants us to do is to treasure his son. He allows us to go through the difficult trials in our lives because he wants Christ to be exalted in your life. And he wants Christ to be exalted in this world. He loves you, but he wants you to love him. But the second thing is he doesn't just want us to love him. He wants us to tr and treasure him. He wants us to trust him. It says here, uh, though you have not seen him, you love him, treasure him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. You trust him. Is God trustworthy? Has he ever failed you, really? I mean, this world has failed you. Other people have failed you, but God has never failed you. God has promised that I will never leave you or forsake you. The amazing thing about the gospel message is this, that on your worst day, if you trust in Christ, he still loves you infinitely, accepts you totally, forgives you completely. That is a message of hope and joy that the world needs to hear. That on my best day, God doesn't love me more. God doesn't accept me more. He doesn't forgive me more. It's not based on my work. It's based on whose work? Christ. And so who gets exalted? Who gets praise? Christ. Christ gets exalted. Christ gets treasured. Christ gets trusted because he is trustworthy. And so now what we can do to those people in, in Warren County here who, who are pain in pain and in misery and suffering, we can't guarantee that the suffering is going to go. We can't. But what we can guarantee is that there is a Christ who loves them in and through the suffering. And that is a one pure and holy passion. So Peter doesn't get to it in this section, but I want you to consider the fact that every aspect of suffering is born out of sin. Evil and sin exist in this world. There's some religions that actually want to teach that evil and suffering are an illusion. I don't know what they're talking about. It's kind of crazy to me. Evil and suffering is real. We just watched this weekend where somebody took a missile to take a plane out of the sky. Evil. There is an evil that is in this world, but there's an evil in humanity's heart. And why God allows that evil to exist, I don't know completely. But what I do know is this, that God allows for evil to exist in this world. And God promises that evil will be overturned in this world. And what God promises is that he wants to provide you hope in the midst of the evil that happens. Every relationship, every pain that you've ever gone through is a byproduct of humanity's sin. I was watching on the news this morning and there's a great sinkhole in, in Florida. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine all of a sudden the, the ground under you opens up and homes get swallowed up? Every tsunami, every hurricane is a byproduct, believe it or not, of humanity's sin. Our sin, humanity's sin, crippled this world. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Our sin crippled our relationship with each other. Every marital discord, 
every parental and child discord, every painful relationship that you've had, every time that you've ever been rejected, every time that you've ever been hurt, it's a byproduct of humanity's sin. Our sin has impacted nature. Our sin has impacted our relationships with one another. Our sin has impacted our relationship with God. Sin disturbs everything. It deceives. It destroys. It is deep. And what God did was he allowed humanity in their choice to choose to reject him, but that was not going to foul up his ultimate plan. His ultimate plan was going to be seen, as we're going to celebrate in a moment, by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for you and for me. What God was going to do was he was going to overthrow evil. Why does God allow evil to exist? I think one of the reasons why he allows evil and suffering to exist today is that he wants to prove himself to be glorious. He wants to demonstrate to you his holy love for you and his holy love for humanity. What is the ultimate evil in this world? I was thinking, you know, if you were to consider what the ultimate evil in this world is and what is the ultimate wrong, taking another person's life is pretty evil. Rejecting someone is pretty evil, but one pastor said it this way. Listen with me as he described what the ultimate evil is. The glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God is not reverenced. The greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The promises of God are not relied upon. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. That's what he believed, and I believe, is the ultimate evil. The ultimate evil is that we don't recognize that God is big and our struggles are small. So that brings me to the last thing I want you to consider as we close the gospel. There is no greater message to be heard in this world than the fact of the gospel. There are some people today that are distorting the gospel and minimizing the gospel to be something good for you today. You know, your best life now. That you could be happy in this world and that you could be fulfilled. Some people are distorting the gospel to be the amount of money that's in your bank account. Some people distort the gospel into being that you're going to be healed of your diseases. A number of those things are wonderful benefits to the gospel. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is this. That every single one of us is going to stand before a holy God and have to give an account. And we will stand before God and have to declare righteousness. I will either declare my righteousness or the righteousness of another. The problem is, is that my righteousness, as the scripture said, is filthy rags. It's nothing. And all the good that I do in this earth means nothing if it is not vertical. If it is not towards Christ and if it's not towards God, then it's towards me. 
in my own glory, and I fail. And the world today has this idea of God being this loving God who just overlooks sin. He doesn't. God is a good judge. He punishes every sin. He will either punish every sin on the back of the person, or he will punish that sin on the back of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe the gospel is this, that I don't have righteousness of my own, but Christ has it. That he lived a perfectly obedient life for you and for me if you trust in him. He offered a perfect sacrifice for our failings. I don't have to earn anything from God. Christ earned it all for us. This is not wishy-washy. God's forgiveness of you was a costly matter. What we celebrate in a moment is costly. It cost Christ his very life. We're not justified by our works. We're not justified by our efforts. We're not justified by our deeds. We are justified by faith alone. Faith alone in Christ, putting your trust in him, worshiping him, honoring him, and he declares you, if you do that, not guilty. He declares you righteous in his sight. That's a message that this world needs to hear. That's a message that if this become a church of first responders, that's a message that we could take out to this world. But it's not just a message that we have to speak out of our mouths. It's a message that we need to live in our hearts, in our homes, in our families for the glory of Christ. Last week, Pastor Doug was talking about this book, When People Are Big, God Is Small. And then if you remember, Pastor Tim had gotten up, and you remember the word that he talked about? Majesty. We declare your majesty. We proclaim that your name is exalted. For you reign magnificently. You rule victoriously. And your power, God, is shown throughout the earth. And we exclaim, our God is mighty. Lift up your name, for you are worthy. Sing it again, and I won't sing it for you, but sing it again. All honor and glory. In adoration, we bow before your throne. If the greatest evil that was ever committed on this earth was what? The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that produced the greatest joy and the greatest hope that humanity has ever known the wonderful salvation message that we have the privilege of hearing, the privilege of knowing, the privilege of believing, but now the privilege of sharing to the world. Lord, we praise you and we thank you.